This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here on this Lord's Day. Uh, so thankful for all the songs and prayers uh, up to this point. Uh, Kaylin, your remarks, you spoke on something that's in my closing, which I thought was uh, wonderful. So it always works out that way, doesn't it? Uh, the text for the lesson this morning is going to come from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to turn there and read that real quick. It says, I, John, who also am your brethren, companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Uh, the text actually continues through verse 20, but we're going to stop reading right there. Um, we're about to get into the meat and the purpose of this book. Uh, all of this is going to begin with a vision that, that John has, and that vision really starts now. Uh, and a vision is not the same thing as a sight that you might see as you cast your eyes about. Uh, I heard a man once explain it this way. What's the difference between a vision and a sight, he asked. When my wife gets dressed up for a party, she looks like a vision. She's the picture of beauty. She's surreal even. And when she wakes up in the morning, she's a sight. <laughs> For our study this morning, we say that John had a vision. And there are a few things to remember. Number one, he was awake at the time. John was in the Spirit. John says he was in the Spirit. Uh, the word that he uses is pneuma. That's properly spirit, wind, or breath. And John was actually imbued with or taken control of by the Holy Spirit. He was experiencing that same breath of God that breathed life into Adam it's that same breath that is the Word of God and was breathed into the writers of the Bible as they were inspired to write it. This was not a hallucination as some people have tried to say over time. Uh, it was the same inspiration process that other writers of the Bible experienced, but it was with circumstances that were unique to John. Third point is that it was on the Lord's Day, this vision. <clears throat> now, there are four common views as to what the Lord's Day is referring to here. Some believe it refers to Sunday, and it's an argument used to support moving from worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, to the first day of the week when the Lord was resurrected. Uh, some believe that this refers to the Sabbath day. Some believe it refers to the actual day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus. And some believe that when they say day of the Lord, they mean the times of the Lord or the lifetime of the Lord, the period of time in which he lived. Uh, this debate that's referred to here uh, I would say mo you know, most people we probably come across will say that they believe it refers to Sunday. Um, there's studies in it, and when it, at the end of all that, some people say, well, that's the weakest argument of all. Um, to facilitate our study of Revelation, though, I'm not really going to get into those arguments. I'm just going to say that I believe it has a nuanced meaning. Uh, which potentially refers to more than one of these things. And bear in mind that this is a prophetic book, 
uh, whose purpose is to ultimately expound on the coming day of the Lord. There's a sense of urgency placed in the book because the day of the Lord is at hand. Therefore, the teachings and views of Jesus in his lifetime and his second coming and his resurrection, all of these things should be preeminent in our mind as we read the book. So I think it's safe to say, take the view that John was taken by the Spirit in the fullest understanding of the teachings and lives and life of Jesus Christ as they culminate in the second coming of our Lord. Now, whether or not it was Sunday, Saturday, or even an annual feast day, that's not really the primary concern here. With this in mind, I just want to first tie together verses 8, 11, and 17 through 18. Together, these verses show three separate times that Jesus makes the declarative statement that he is Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. And I want to ask you, why do you think Jesus repeated this three times? In the Bible, anytime there's repetition, it's purposeful. In Genesis 41, verse 32, we see an example of this being explained. Joseph is explaining this concept to Pharaoh. And in verse 32, it says, And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. In other words, it was repeated. It is because... The thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So the idea here is that if God says something twice, <clears throat> then it is established, it is sure, and you should take special note of it. It's a prophecy that's certainly going to come to pass. God does not repeat himself in vain. This, there's a reason for this being here. That Sometimes, though, God says something three times. Now, the most obvious significance to something being mentioned three times is that it refers to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it's sometimes used in other ways as well. Some examples of this are Jesus declared that Peter would deny him three times. Well, why three times? Peter would not just deny Christ, he would do so in a way that left him no excuse or escape from what he'd done. Later, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Again, why three times? Jesus was teaching Peter the difference between the love of God and the love of man. And he wanted to impress the binding and unique nature of the love that God would have us have onto Peter. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, we see the seraphim, which is a type of angel, proclaiming that God is holy, holy, holy. And then the whole earth, it says, is full of his glory. And then later in Revelation 4, verse 8, we see four beasts which are described in a very similar way to the seraphim, also proclaiming that God is holy, holy, holy. And his glory is again linked to all creation in Revelation 4, verse 11. Why is God declared holy three times in relation to all creation? Everything that was created in the past, sustained in the present, and promised in the future is there because of a very special, totally unique, and set-apart God who sits unreachable above all else. Nothing else can compare to God because nothing else is like God. Nothing else is of the same essence as God. If a good man can be holy, then perhaps an angel could be holy, holy. But then there is still above it all God who is holy, holy, holy. Perfection. Not just because he manifests in three distinct persons, but because he is unique beyond all creation. So the idea conveyed by something being said three times is to lend it a unique and binding emphasis. It is from the very hand of God. So from this we can derive certain principles. It is of great importance 
It's especially guaranteed by God and is certain. It is uniquely binding. And it's very often used as the mark of the hand and will of God in a thing the same way that would be if, a per, if somebody used to have a signet ring and they'd seal it in wax to show it came from them. Now all of this is to say that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 11, Jesus is declaring that he is God three times to authenticate the vision John is receiving as real, to certify it as trustworthy, and to declare it as eminent and binding from the hand of God himself. And bear in mind that we have seven churches here, which represents the complete church, receiving three declarations that it is God speaking. The following prophecies and admonition are unique, binding, and eternally guaranteed. <clears throat> you may often wish that God would take some time to give you clear direction. Maybe it's as a church, maybe it's as an individual, but here he's going to do that. And that is why he's doing this. He wants us to know this is from his mouth and from his heart. Understanding the use of symbolism here really helps us to understand that the following letters are not merely letters to historical churches. Hear me on this because it's important. There are some who believe these are historical letters that passed away with the churches and they take the lesson from it that, well, this church didn't heed this advice and therefore they are no longer here. That may be in part part of the message. But the true message here is that this is a complete message to the complete church for all time is an eternally binding message that we will see in each of these letters. For now, let's just remember that all these words of Jesus that we've been examining are coming as soon as John is pulled into this vision. He hasn't yet got his bearings. And in fact, he says the voice was coming from behind him. So about this time, John begins to get his bearings, and he turns around to see who it was speaking behind him, saying these things. Revelations chapter 1, verse 12 says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." One commentator writes, at the sound of this voice, John turned, and behind him was this vision, which at first may have seemed to him maybe like the holy place in the temple because of what he began to see. But it was not the temple. There was no altar of incense. There was no table of showbread. In place of a single seven-branched lamp that is referred to as the menorah, there were seven distinct lamps set before him. John saw nothing here except the Lord and the symbols of the church for which he died. There were seven separate lamps of gold connected only by their association with Jesus, our glorious high priest. And Jesus was even in the vestments of a priest. Each of these items had great significance. And they reveal a lot about the fulfilled work of Christ on the church by what was not there. In the Jewish temple, all the way back to the sanctuary of Moses, there were certain implements. Hebrews 9, verse, verses 1 through 2 and verse 23 says, Then verily, 
The first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So I put it to you that what John is seeing is sort of like a vision of the sanctuary in heaven and take note of what's missing and what's there and what's changed. John is seeing a vision of Jesus in his role as a high priest within the spiritual sanctuary pictured by the one from the temple. And we can deduce several symbolic things from this. First, before the priest had even entered the curtain, he would have offered sacrifice on the brazen altar here. He would have washed to cleanse himself at the labor here. Then he would have gone into the temple. Here you have the lamp. Here you have the table of showbread. Here you have the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense where the priest burned the incense, what that was was when they would go through, when the high priest would go through into the Holy of Holies, that smell would waft in with him. And it was symbolic of our prayers, which are as a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. The table and the showbread consisted of 12 loaves of wheat bread, which corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. It was placed on the table of the showbread in front of the Holy of Holies, opposite the lampstand, containing the seven lamps. And they were arranged, this bread was brought in every Sabbath day, and they were arranged in two rows of six loaves each, with each loaf being piled on top of another. When the new loaves were placed on the table, the weak old loaves were taken out and they were eaten by the priests and the holy priest in the holy place of the sanctuary. The showbread was literally, what it means is bread of the presence or bread of the face of God. It uses actually the plural form of faces, just like Elohim is plural, to signify that God is one God manifested in three persons, the faces of God. And it's, this bread simultaneously referred to the faces of the 12 tribes of Israel as they appeared before the presence of God. All of this is represented by these loaves of bread as they're placed in front of the Holy of Holies. In the presence of God from week to week, the showbread is a picture of Israel having constant communion and fellowship with God and acceptance by Him. John 6.35 says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see, there was one loaf up here for each tribe. There's 12 loaves there. Even now, as there is only one loaf in Christ, for all believing members of God's people, the church, we eat of this spiritual bread, which is Christ. We are sustained by it. We're brought into the presence of God by it and are accepted by God because of it. So you see, the absence of of the table of showbread allows for us to see in this vision of John's allows for us to see what has replaced it the one true loaf the one true bread of life Jesus Christ then there's the golden lampstand I want to share with you my studies concerning this uh, the lampstand of the tabernacle and temple was first to be made of pure gold and it was to be hammered out according to very specific instructions you can see in Exodus chapter 25 verses 31 through 39 now, gold has not only been amongst the most valuable 
of metals throughout history, but it's also tested and tried by fire. And like gold, 1 Peter 1 verse 7 says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Out of testing or refining will come the true people of God. Look at Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, speaking about God's people, and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Something else of interest is that the lampstand as a whole was to be fashioned as a tree with the base and center shaft representing the trunk and with three branches on each side. The top of the shaft and each branch was to be made like an open almond flower. Now that's important, an almond flower, not just any flower. Each of those flowers had an oil lamp in it. You can see that in Exodus 25, verses 32 and 37. There are several passages in the Bible that speak about the almond tree. And it was always the first tree to blossom and bear fruit in the spring. In fact, it would blossom and bear fruit as early as February. The Apostle Paul calls Christ the first fruits because Jesus was the first to rise from the dead to everlasting life. And because of his resurrection, all the other believers will be raised as well. So Jesus is like this almond flower. He is that the trunk, the base of the tree, or the vine, if you will, and we are the branches. And each of us will bloom and be resurrected because he has. There's symbolism in this lamp. Now, <clears throat> right now, Jesus has flowered before us and borne the fruit of resurrection, and he stands appointed as our high priest. Did you know that God used Aaron's rod as a sign to the Israelites of his unique priesthood. At one time, when Aaron's priesthood was being challenged, God caused Aaron's bud to, or, or rod to bud and grow ripe almonds overnight. That's impossible. Uh, it takes a long time for an almond to form. This miracle reaffirmed that the privilege of being chosen as high priest comes through God's appointment only. You can see that in Numbers 16, 3, and uh, chapter 17, verse 10. This was all a shadow of things to come. They all pointed to Jesus, our God-ordained, life-giving high priest. You see how this theme of almonds flowering? It's throughout the Bible. It's always pointing to Christ, and the reason the almond was chosen is because it blooms and produces fruit before anything else does. In the tabernacle, the lampstand was to be placed in the first interior room called the holy place. That's Hebrews 9, verse 2. The lamp was to be tended by Aaron and his sons so that its light never went out by day or night, according to Exodus 27, verses 20 through 21. The fact that the lampstand was the only source of light in the presence of God points to Christ again as being the light of the world, John 8, verse 12. Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone, John 1, verse 9. And the only way... You can come to the Father that, that you can see your way to Him is through Jesus Christ. Jesus also calls His church the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14. 
This is not of their own doing, but it's because Christ is abiding in the church. A Christian who is shining with the light of Christ will live a godly life. Scripture is overflowing to the references that compare and contrast light and darkness, believer and unbeliever, right up to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1 verse 20, Christ says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The churches of Christ are to walk in the light of God. And who is present in the midst of those lampstands but Christ, our bread of life and our lamp? You see how he has fulfilled what is missing from that earthly sanctuary. But why are there seven single lampstands versus the seven branched lampstands? Why is there this change from the Old Testament times? Well, the Lord himself gives the basic reason in verse 11. Each lamp represents the church of a particular place, acknowledging that the church is spread out across the world. Some have suggested that they represent different denominations of Christians, and I find nothing given here that supports that idea. But another possibility is that these different lamps indicate different types, phases, or personalities of the church, if you will. This view is borne out in the different strengths and weaknesses that we're going to see in the individual churches in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to examine a little of these ideas, but one thing is indeed certain. Before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, there had been only one earthly visible center of worship, and it was in the possession of God's one chosen special people, the Israelites. And to signify this, that one lamp was put in that one temple in that one city for that one people. And if you wanted to be in God's presence, you had to go to that one place. But now that lamp is seven separate things representing the complete entire church spread out amongst the world. And Jesus manages as our high priest to be present and provide us the bread and provide us the light and intercede for us in front of the holy place. And that is what we're seeing when we look and we see, and when John, when John turns around and sees this vision, there is one like unto the Son of Man standing there. He says, "When John turned around, and in so doing, he took in this vision. He sees standing before him in the midst of the golden lamps one like unto the Son of Man. This is." who we've been talking about, that high priest. He's entered into the heavens to appear in the presence of God for us. But interestingly, John did not see Christ in the act of interceding for us with God in the Holy of Holies in this vision. What he saw is what is important to you and I right now. He saw Christ walking among his churches, observing them, teaching them, guiding them. So he is active in his church, he is guiding us. When, he, when we say Christ is the head of the church, a body, there cannot be a body without a head. A body without a head is a freak. Adrian Rogers used to like to say a body, anything with two heads is a freak, talking about leadership. But we cannot expect that we are existing without Christ ever present with us as the church. He is our head. He is always here. And rather than seeing the, the, such the, the important role of Jesus in the Holy of Holies before God the Father interceding for us, what was important for us to see was that Christ is here with us. And it's important to remember that. Now, when John says he saw one like unto the Son of Man, he doesn't mean an angel, as some suggest. Now, we know 
this because this person here speaks of himself as a divine person, as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. These are not titles applicable to any created beings, and angels are created beings. He says he's been dead, but angels do not experience death as we do. And he also says he lives again and lives forevermore. He declares he has power over, the de over death and the grave, which no creature has. Indeed, he plainly refers to himself as God. This is Jesus, the angel of the Lord. When you read through the Bible, sometimes the translations say the angel of the Lord, and it's talking about what we see here. Jesus, in his form as he chooses to present himself throughout the Old Testament, and you know when, he, when he's not here as the man, it's known as the angel of the Lord. But then other times you see the angel of the Lord, and it's talking about an actual different angel. But here we are talking about Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 17 through 22. I'm going to read this passage from the NLT just to more easily capture what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath, but there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said unto him, The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Christ is said to be walking amongst the candlesticks or the churches. He's ever-present. He's promised that he's always going to be present. You realize that with the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron and his sons, they had no say in whether they were going to be priests. They were just made priests. Furthermore, they might sin. We know about Eli's sons and the wickedness that they did. And we know that God may not have listened to them. Eventually they died and could no longer perform that office. But Jesus is forever without sin. He will always be heard. He will never die. He will always intercede for us. His intercessions will always be accepted by God and therefore we are eternally able to experience salvation. That is what this oath means. Now I want to look at a little bit of uh, the appearance of Jesus. We read the description of Jesus in Revelation 1, and I want to show you another place where it's described as well to show you the continuity throughout the Bible. It's Daniel 10, verse 6. That verse says, His body looked like a precious gem, his face flashed like lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. His feet, his arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. You see the comparisons? They're not exactly the same. Showing, in my opinion, you know, if the Bible was a forgery, if John wanted, if he was a liar, wouldn't he have taken the description already given by Daniel and copied it precisely, and yet he didn't? He, there's nothing that contradicts in the two descriptions, but there's variations showing that these are separate, unique visions that uh, they correspond with one another. I think that's just wonderful. I've kind of highlighted in different colors. I don't know if you can see that, the similar things. But there is one thing that is in Revelation 1, 13 through 16, that's not in Daniel, and that's the sharp two-edged sword, which we're going to get to in a minute. 
I came across a commentator who was speaking of Jesus's eyes. Um, but before I say that, you know, I just want to point out, we've already kind of said, let's just say Jesus looked the part. He wore priestly clothing, it says his head and his hairs were whiter than any shade of white we can know, and this indicated his purity. And his countenance blazed like the sun. When we look at his eyes, they were like flaming fires, like torches. This commentator says, the fact that they're fiery may allude to the omniscience of Christ, which reaches to all persons and all things and is very searching and penetrating. And it discovers and brings light, even to those things normally shrouded in darkness. Christ's eyes reflect love for his bride, the church, because they have both the heat of passion and the light of adoration. The light of love in Christ's eyes, it never dims or grows cold. And when he looks into the hearts of his people, he warms them. The gaze of Christ melts their souls into a true and genuine repentance for sin. None of that is in this verse of Scripture, but I encourage you to sit in prayer and meditate on these things and ask yourself, is that not true that we see that? And finally, his fiery eyes are those of impending wrath and vengeance toward his enemies. His wrath will be fierce and furious bringing swift and sudden destruction before which there is no standing and from which there is no fleeing. And what about his arms and feet? When we read that his arms and feet shone like polished bronze, it's alluding to the power of Christ in bearing up and supporting his people and his effectiveness in the care and government and defense of them. When Christ works his mighty works and walks amongst his people, his actions are imbued with holiness Justice, righteousness, and his coming wrath is a thing to be feared. For this is no mere man that John is seeing. Christ is divine. He's all-powerful. And when he does decide to stomp out all wickedness and sin, there will be nothing that can withstand his power or bear the weight of that blow. And that takes us to that sharp two-edged sword, the Word of God, by which we will all be judged issuing forth from his mouth. And unlike the Old Testament priest, Christ is a blade master. You know, you give a sword to a child and he'll either hurt himself or hurt someone else, whether intentional or not. But you give a sword to a blade master and we're told it can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The Bible, the word of God, will either justify or condemn us by our works, starting with whether or not we accept Christ as our Redeemer. This is why it's said that Christ is simultaneously our comforter and defender, while at the same time, Proverbs 19.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing who Christ is, what He is capable of, that He has the power to cast the unbelieving soul into hell, doesn't it seem wise to hold such an one in a healthy, reverent fear? You know, we focus an awful lot in modern times on the love of Christ, and we should. But if you don't have a healthy, reverent fear of God, there's something wrong. It's easy to take a casual view of God sometimes, to treat Him like a vending machine, which you occasionally seek something. But we're talking about God. We're talking about the Son of Man. Look at the description here. This is not someone to be casual about. Yes, he loves us and we love him. 
Yes, he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. No, he does not want us to cower in fear, but he wants us to reverence him with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is why when John saw Jesus in his vision, we're told in Revelation 1.17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. If you think you'd do any different, you might be mistaken. Now, I want to talk about the seven stars as my last point this morning. Um, In verse 16, we're told that he had in his right hand seven stars. Some argue that these are actual angels assigned to individual churches, while others believe they mean the elders. Because when Christ addresses the churches and points out their failings, he lumps the stars or the angels of the seven churches into his critique. Since the only angels who ever rebelled and sinned were cast from heaven, we know that the angels who remain with God are without sin. Therefore, to address an actual angel in this way, as though he were part of the sin of the church, makes little sense to me. Instead, I think it makes far better sense to see the stars or the angels of the seven churches as pastors, elders, or bishops, all biblical titles meaning shepherds. Now, the word pastor, as used in the Bible, is the Latin form of, uh, that's the Latin form of poimen. And that's someone that the Lord raises up to care for the total well-being of his flock or the people of the Lord. Pastors are the elders of the church. They are not, biblically speaking, one man who does all the preaching. That is not what a biblical pastor is. A pastor may be a teacher and preacher, but there is a plurality of pastors, according to the examples that we are given. And they are not... um, the only person that teaches, as we can see in Ephesians chapter 4 when we talk about the various gifts that people have. So, but they do have an important role. Uh, The shepherds that the Lord has appointed to care for the individual flocks or churches are ministers, are leaders who've been forged by the trials of life as guided by God. They are not perfect men. To say they are is to only profess your ignorance of the word of God. There is no such thing as a perfect pastor. Men who are elders are not better than other Christians, but they have been given the gifts of leadership and pastoral care as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. They are a mandatory, necessary, mandatory when they're present, necessary function of the church. Now, I say when they're present because it is possible that God has not yet gifted somebody to become such, but when he has, they are to be the leader. They are to be the shepherd. They are to be the overseer. Each of these seven churches, everyone without fail, had an angel or a elder, pastor, or bishop. And they're compared to stars because just like the stars of heaven, God has made them. He's fixed them in their proper place. And from them, there is light shed, there is guidance given. All for God's glory. That is the role of these angels of the church. They are led by Christ. They are held in his right hand. And the fact that they are held in his right hand is meaningful. For our purposes here, the proper understanding of Christ holding the stars in his right hand is simply to say that he is especially supporting them. 
He is lending them his strength to do the work of shepherding to which he has called them. Their authority, their wisdom, their capability. It all comes from Christ as they reside in his right hand. That is why we are called to submit to them. But because God has given them this position of such great influence, he also holds them to a much higher account. James 3 verse 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters or leaders or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And that is why we see when Jesus addresses each of the seven churches, he says, unto the angel of the church of, he addresses it to that elder, to that leader. Someday, our congregation will have elders. And one of the best pieces of advice that I know that I've found in my study of the Bible that can be given to a congregation who receives elders is to know that it has nothing to do with the men or their perceived capability as you see it has nothing to do with seeking power on their part if they are put in place it was done by Jesus and bear in mind they are held in his right hand and they receive the strength and wisdom from him to do that job and so we can submit to them even if we don't understand them knowing that when you have something in your hand as Christ does if it fails to suit purpose, it's an easy matter to close that hand, isn't it? We don't have to worry about that. It's in Christ's right hand, just as it was here. And they will receive greater judgment than we will, so it's a heavy burden to bear. And you will see that as we begin to study these seven churches, because can you imagine being the angel of the church of Laodicea? My goodness. My goodness. So in conclusion, I just want to uh, say that what we've seen today is that Christ reminds us that what is to follow in the book of Revelation is not the words of an old man, but the binding words of the Alpha and Omega. He's in control. He's on the throne. He's lived as a man like us. And as such, he can serve as our high priest as no other can or could. And yet he's so much more than a mere man. He is God. There is none like him. To look on him will induce fear in any man, for he is that mighty and impressive. Kalen mentioned the song I can, or the movie related to the song I can only imagine this morning. I already have that written in my notes. I love that song. Um, I've heard it played at funerals, and I've heard it played in other settings, and no matter where it's played, it's just, it really centers your mind. It's just a wonderful thing. It asks the question, this is what I like about it. What will we do when we come face to face with the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end? He asks, will I sing hallelujah or will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. You know, I know that we're all going to be filled with such joy when we're in his presence, such relief. Ever had a massage before and you didn't realize you were sore until somebody started rubbing on you? I think that when we finally cast off all our burdens and go into his loving embrace for all eternity, we're suddenly going to feel the weight lifted of burdens we didn't even know that we had. I can only imagine. 
But as to whether or not we will be able to speak at all, I suspect we could find the answer to that in Revelation 1, verse 18. We will fall at his feet as dead, just as John did. And then he will lay his right hand upon us and he will say, as it does in the last verses of our text, do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I was dead and behold, I live never to taste of death again. In fact, I have the keys of hell and death and I am casting them into the pit. And I'm taking you to be with me forevermore because I have the power to do that. And I love you, child. Today we're to be wed and you will henceforth be one with me and will remain so for all eternity. And then I think we'll be able to sing hallelujah. As it happens, if you're not yet saved, Christ also sent you a wedding invitation. It's here in this book we call the Bible. Will you not heed that invitation? And if you already accepted the invitation, but you've carelessly forgotten it or turned your focus back to the world, I ask you, what event is happening in eternity that you would rather be? Where would you rather go? If either case describes you, I beg you, take that invitation that is offered to you. Hold it tight. Don't ever let it go. Trust me, there is nowhere else than Christ's wedding feast that you would rather be. Come without delay. Come forward and have a seat on this front bench so we can help you as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.